Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, New Media and Video Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Associate Editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Subscribe to the FNS On Air podcast, part of the ASRM Today series. This podcast brings you each month edition of Fertility and Sterility, cover to cover, in 45 minutes or less. Special episodes will cover in-depth topics and interviews with editors, authors, and leaders in the field. Subscribe today to stay current and remain on the cutting edge of reproductive medicine. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new edition of Fertility and Sterility on Air. I'm Kurt Barnhart, and I'm here with Micah Hill and Eve Feinberg. Hello, Micah. Hello, Eve. Hi, Kurt. Hi, Kurt. So today we're going to cover the table of contents for Fertility and Sterility, the October 2020 edition, volume 114, number four. This month's edition of Fertility and Sterility has a wide range of interesting papers, ranging from oral contraceptive effects on cumulative live birth, are OB outcomes different with ICSI, and methylation patterns in men who have varicocele, and so much more. We can't wait to talk about it. It's an exciting edition. I hope you'll learn a lot, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I think we're going to start with the views and reviews section. Thanks, Kurt. This month's views and reviews is focusing on multiple pregnancies and assisted reproduction. The introduction was written by Cindy Farkar, who summarizes the rationale for the pieces. Transferring one embryo at a time should be the norm. This month's series covers a multitude of issues related to multiple gestation. Is single embryo transfer as effective as transfer of two or more embryos? The article by Berg et al. makes a great case that one at a time should be the norm. The paper summarizes the evidence and discusses the importance of cumulative pregnancy rate and not pregnancy rate from a single transfer. In the second article by Adamson and Norman, they review the international rates of multiples using ICMART data. Higher numbers of embryos are transferred in jurisdictions with relatively expensive ART. These findings are consistent with findings in the U.S. that showed states with insurance mandates transfer lower number of embryos. The article talks about the drivers of decision-making and the need to set a goal to reduce multiple pregnancy rates in ART. The third article was written by Van Voorhees, and they reviewed the current evidence from poorer health, economic and social outcomes for mother and baby from multiple pregnancies. And in the final article, Chambers and others discuss the economics of ART. They discuss both the change in cost and reporting structure of an ART cycle to emphasize a complete cycle, which is inclusive of fresh and all subsequent frozen embryo transfers, as opposed to individual cycles. And this complete cycle reporting would allow for much better outcome. Back to you, Kurt. Thanks, Steve. That's a, a very important views and reviews. And I do want to mention that we're going to have a Journal Club Global on that topic live at uh, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. If you happen to hear this podcast after that, please uh, look at the rebroadcast you can find at the dialogue or at the, at the FNS website. The next important part of this month's issue is a fertile battle. And I think Mike is going to go over that with us. 
Thanks, Kurt. This is by far one of my favorite sections of the journal. In this month's Fertile Battle, Jacques Donez brings together a group of six really world-class researchers to debate the pros and cons of using a GnRH agonist during chemotherapy for the purpose of fertility preservation. So the three authors of the con side really focus on two main points, lack of clear molecular mechanism for how GnRH agonists might be beneficial, and the limitations of the current randomized controlled trials, specifically focusing on the unblinded natures of those trials and how that could introduce bias. Hugh Taylor specifically mentions that because primordial follicles do not express FSH, LH, or GnRH receptors, GnRH agonists cannot directly impact those follicles or ovarian reserve, and thus this removes biologic plausibility. Interestingly, the pro side actually focuses on the same two issues, but spins those topics in the opposite direction. They focus on the strengths of the RCTs and the consistency behind them and how that causes some bodies to review this literature and recommend GnRH agonist use. And then they also focus on emerging potential mechanisms, molecular mechanisms for the action of GnRH. So Matteo Lambertini specifically says that GnRH agonist use during chemotherapy in breast cancer patients in randomized controlled trials has somewhere between a 14 and a 31% reduction in ovarian insufficiency. But he does agree that GnRH should be an adjunct and not a standalone preservation method. Michael Van Wolf mentions very recent work that shows that GnRH inhibits specific cyclophosphamide-induced and BAX-mediated apoptotic pathways in granulosa cells, thus giving a potential mechanism for biologic plausibility. Donez, who puts this all together when he reviews the six arguments, agrees with the con side not to recommend routine agonist use for preservation, but he also agrees with the pro side that it should be used as an adjunct in breast cancer patients. So, Kurt and Eve, I haven't used GnRH agonists routinely outside of breast cancer for about five years with these patients. If you had to choose one of these sides to argue the pro or the con, which do you think you would choose? I would choose the con. I think we have much more effective therapies like embryo and egg vitrification. Kurt? I'll, I'll stay neutral in, in Switzerland, and I think that each patient should be individualized. But let me move uh, to Jacques Genet has been busy this month. He also authored an inkling in this month's journal. Um, this inkling was also co-authored by Marie Madeleine Dolmas, and it describes a medical therapy of fibroids with new medical therapies such as selective progesterone receptor modulators, or SPERMs, as well as oral GnRH antagonists. This article should be of great interest to all readers as fibroids are very common and with clear and known morbidity. There really hasn't been a change in the medical management of fibroids for decades, and this inkling reviews the interesting story behind the use of sperms using ylopristal acetate, or UPA, as kind of a model. The first sperm, UPA, was introduced with a randomized trial in 2012, and there's also evidence that UPA can be used in women desiring to improve or maintain their fertility when they have fibroids, rather than just reducing fibroid size or heavy bleeding. Other sperms were under development by a number of companies and were far along in phase three. But unfortunately, in 2018, due to five cases of drug-related liver injury that required liver transplant, the development of progesterone receptor modulators has come to a halt, or at least a pause. Even though the incidence of these drug-related injuries is exceedingly rare, only five cases and more than 900,000 participants, this is a serious safety risk and must be evaluated. Luckily, the story of GnRH antagonists has been a good one. There are at least three antagonists being developed, including Elagolix, which is actually on the market, Rulagolix, and Linzagolix, 
all with encouraging data. Because these agents result in a very low estrogen environment, add-back therapy is used to maintain bone density. And as reviewed, these phase three trials have had very specific detailed endpoints that must be met for FDA approval, such as decrease in fibroid size or decrease in heavy menstrual bleeding. But now it's up to us as clinicians to further hone the utility of these drugs for women who want to maintain their fertility or enhance fertility with medical management, besides just reducing size and heavy menstrual bleeding. So a nice review. Now we're going to move on to the original content in the journal, and we're going to start with the category of andrology. Micah, I think you've got the first article. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. Varicoceles are very common. They're present in up to 15% of all men and anywhere from 30 to 50% of infertile men. Varicoceles are associated with reduced semen analysis parameters, and they also cause oxidative stress that can lead to sperm DNA fragmentation. So in this month's journal, Santana and colleagues from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, along with collaborators in Utah, to determine if epigenetic aberrations are the additional mechanism by which varicoceles reduce fertility in their article entitled Differential DNA Methylation Pattern and Sperm Quality in Men with Varicocele. They designed a prospective observational cohort to compare DNA methylation patterns in the sperm of 26 fertile men versus 26 men who were infertile with varicoceles. Researchers found 26 differentially methylated CPG sites. Most of these were hypomethylated in the varicocele cohort. When they looked at a regional methylation analysis, they found over 1,600 differentially methylated sites. These were a fairly even mixture of hyper and hypomethylated. Some of the regions with differential methylation included genes that are responsible for male reproduction, but these aberrations weren't seen in all men with varicoceles, just at an average compared to the control cohort. In conclusion, the authors say that changes in methylation may be associated with low semen quality phenotype observed in some varicocele patients. There was a really nice commentary also on this article by Broegaard and Lipschultz, and they pointed out that using fertile men as the control is not ideal, as infertility itself has been shown to be associated with methylation changes. They also note that some of the aberrant methylated regions could lead to vasculitis, and so they wonder if these varicoceles are altering the epigenome or if it's the epigenome causing vasculitis, which leads to varicoceles, hence the title, the chicken or the egg. So my take home point was like GWAS studies, large methylation studies never seem to yield null findings because of the sheer volume of comparisons that are made. These aberrations were not consistently seen in men when in the varicocele group, but were driven by some outliers. I tend to interpret these studies as hypothesis generating to further investigate candidate methylation sites and regions in men. And Kurt, I believe the next article uh, is for you as we move on to the assisted reproduction section of the journal. Yeah, thank you, Mike. There are a number of articles in this section, and I want to start with one that I think has great clinical implications to many of our practices. Scheduling IVF, especially in busy clinics, can be really difficult. Often, oral contraceptive pills are used at the discretion of these practices and providers to provide cycle control and synchronization. As I often say to my patients, the use of oral contraceptive is for convenience and is not medicinal. However, there's always been a lingering concern as to whether oral contraceptive use for cycle control is beneficial, innocuous, or detrimental. So in this paper, 
the effect of pretreatment oral contraceptives on fresh and cumulative live births and in vitro fertilizations outcomes in ovulatory women by first author Dr. Liu and senior author Dr. Sun from Shanghai, China, present a large cohort. The objective of this study was to evaluate the impact of oral contraceptive pretreatment on live birth following fresh embryo transfer as well as cumulative live birth. The study was conducted using data collected from 2014 to 2017. The use of oral contraceptive pretreatment was at the discretion of the providers and or patients' preference, and generally speaking, used one of three monophasic oral contraceptive preparations. More than 5,000 charts were screened for inclusion, with just over 3,000 charts included in the analysis. Specifically, 1,000 subjects were treated with oral contraceptive pretreatment and 2,000 without. Those with oral contraceptive pretreatment were younger, had a lower basal FSH, and a higher proportion of primary infertility compared to those without oral contraceptive use. Tubal factor infertility was the major indication for both groups. The use of in vitro fertilization was relatively standard, as were many of the protocols, and embryos were transferred on either day three or day five based on local standards. Of note, oral contraceptive use was more frequently associated with antagonist cycles. So the major finding of this paper is demonstrate that clinical pregnancy rate after fresh transfer was significantly lower in those pretreated with oral contraceptives. The absolute difference was around 10%, a 59% pregnancy rate decreased to approximately 49%, and there was no difference in early pregnancy loss. In subsequent frozen embryo cycles, the pregnancy rate was similar and not statistically significant. So overall, the cumulative live birth rate from a single IVF cycle was significantly lower with oral contraceptive pretreatment with an absolute difference of around 5%. Now, the study used multivariable logistic regression to try to attempt to control for differences between these two cohorts. As our listeners are well aware of, one limitation of a cohort study compared to a randomized trial is the potential inability to control for all confounding factors, and in this case, something called confounding by indication. In other words, was there some sort of systematic reason that women who received oral contraceptive pretreatment were different from those without pretreatment? Said another way, is it possible that the reason that women did or did not get pretreatment with oral contraceptive is associated with the difference in pregnancy rate? However, my take on this data is that women who received oral contraceptive pretreatment were actually of similar or higher prognosis than those that did not. Thus, the bias is probably in the other direction, if there is a bias at all. And by the way, these data are consistent with a meta-analysis that showed oral contraceptive pretreatment results in a lower pregnancy rate with a relative difference of around 0.75 in Cochrane. This topic has been debated for at least 20 years, and in an accompanying reflection, Drs. Shia and Price from Duke University review the controversy. Appropriately, they point out some details of the paper that may limit generalizability, such as the majority of patients received a day three transfer, which was much more common in China at the time. They also pointed out the logistical concerns regarding the use of oral contraceptives. Oral contraceptives can solve many of the unpredictability associated with initiation of cycles, therefore allowing for more predictability for staff and also for embryologists and incubator space. I'm not sure this paper will resolve this debate, but it certainly makes one consider the pros and cons of using oral contraceptive pretreatment and to which patients it should be applied. It really does look like we may be sacrificing some efficacy for convenience when running a large practice. 
Yeah, I was going to ask Kurt. I mean, I think that finding is concerning. Did they talk about how long patients were on pretreatment for prior to initiation of cycles? And I think to follow up on that, it would be really interesting to know if a short duration was less concerning than a longer duration. It's a great question. They didn't address that specifically. They just defined pretreatment as at least one cycle, but didn't know they didn't mention whether they actually were suppressing people for multiple months. But either way, it really is an interesting question on whether convenience and efficacy are balanced. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that clinically most practices will place patients on oral contraceptive pills for 7 to 21 days. And so I think the biggest limitation of this study or the generalizability is that these patients were on oral contraceptives for one cycle or greater. And I think use in the U.S. is generally limited to less than one cycle. Yeah, and I agree with the uh, the commentary from the, the group at Duke. I think generalizability is a bit of a challenge. These were not, almost all day three embryos. They were 95% double embryo transfer, and they were almost all fresh transfers. So if there is an effect in fresh transfers, this generalizable to the majority of U.S. clinics where frozen embryo transfers may represent the, the largest number of cycles. I think this definitely makes me look at our own practice. It makes me wonder whether it fits to, to how we do. Let's chalk this one up to you can always find limitations of a study, but I'm really glad it's making us think. So let's move forward to the next one. Eve, I think you're up. Thanks, Kurt. This next study is also in the ART section, and it looks at embryo retention. The title of this article is Embryo Retention Significantly Decreases Clinical Pregnancy Rate and Live Birth Rate in a Matched Retrospective Cohort Study. This article was written by Zhu and others from China with a reflection written by Jason Fernesiak. The study examined the effect of retained embryo on pregnancy and live birth rates. Prior data have been conflicting with some studies showing worse outcomes and many other studies showing absolutely no difference. It's always distressing on those rare occasions after transfer when you learn that the embryo is retained. Embryo retention has been reported to occur between 1% to 7.5%. Risk factors include physician experience, difficult transfers, volume of transfer media, or contamination of the catheter with cervical mucus or blood. Blood and mucus are the two that are most closely associated with retained embryos. What I really liked about this study was it was a matched case control study. They looked at patients that had retained embryos, and they were matched two to one to patients without retained embryos during transfer. Cases were matched by patient age, infertility diagnosis, stage and type of embryo transfer, years of infertility, mode of fertilization, transfer physician, and transfer embryologist. In this center, embryo transfer was performed with a full bladder, transabdominal ultrasound, and a Wallace catheter. The embryologist expelled the content of the syringe, and the physician rotated the catheter and withdrew both the inner and outer catheters. Retained embryos were reloaded and transferred immediately. So what did they find? Over this six-year time period, with six physicians in the practice, there were just over 6,000 embryo transfers performed. The overall incidence of retained embryos was 1.59%. Compared with the match group, the embryo retention group showed a significantly lower implantation rate, lower live birth rates, 23% versus 38%, and higher ectopic pregnancy rates, 12.5% versus 3.2%. Interestingly, 
The most important conclusion of the study was that fresh transfers had more retained embryos than frozen transfers, and mucus on the catheter was associated with worse outcomes in fresh, but not frozen transfers. Thanks, Eve. My fellows have taken to saying that the sticky embryos have better prognosis, but I think that this paper is telling us that's not true. Yeah, I think it argues that that's not true in this particular center. I think like anything, you have to look at the data in your own center to make those conclusions. Interestingly, it makes sense that a fresh transfer cycle is associated with a higher rate of retained embryos if they think that it's due to cervical mucus. With a fresh cycle, you often have higher estrogen levels, therefore leading to higher, higher rates of cervical mucus, which may predispose to retained embryos. Thanks, Eve. We're going to move on to another article that I think has widespread clinical implication. This study is entitled Obstetrics and Perinatal Outcomes of ICSI versus Conventional In Vitro Fertilization with Couples with Non-Severe Male Factor. The corresponding author is Dr. Tang and first author Dr. Liu from Yihan, China. This was also a retrospective cohort at a single university-affiliated IVF programs. Couples that were treated between 2012 and 2016 were included. However, this cohort, which was very large, was divided into indications for ICSI, which included non-male factor infertility, advanced maternal age, unexplained infertility, low oocyte yield, and also mild to moderate male factor infertility. Those with severe male factor infertility were excluded. Now, we're all aware that the indications for ICSI have dramatically expanded since its inception. It is now very commonly used for non-male factor infertility, including the categories I just described. The goal of this study was to evaluate the effectiveness and safety of ICSI in those with non-male factor infertility, comparing pregnancy and perinatal outcomes, while specifically looking at the indications underlying ICSI, again, for non-male factor. This study evaluated more than 21,000 subjects, of which almost 19,000 underwent conventional IVF and another 3,000 underwent ICSI. Overall, after controlling for confounding factors, there was a similar live birth rate in both groups. The pregnancy loss was also very similar. When looking at children born, the multiple birth rate was similar, as well as the overall birth weight and gestational age of delivery and there was no significant difference in perinatal complications, including such things as gestational diabetes or hypertensive disorders, macrosomia, or neonatal malformations. When the data was stratified by these six outcomes, including such things as low oocyte yield or unexplained infertility, there were really no prominent differences. One finding was highlighted, and that there was a statistically significant decrease in NICU admissions in those who were conceived with ICSI if they had moderate male factor infertility. As described in the paper, and in my own opinion, I think this is just a spurious finding as I can't understand the biology that would explain that. So my opinion is that there's two ways to look at this data. Overall, the safety of ICSI seems to be demonstrated in this large cohort. However, this cohort also demonstrates that there's no advantage of ICSI in terms of pregnancy rate, decreased perinatal risks, or any risks to the mother or the child. It's important to understand that while this is a very large cohort, it is still a cohort, and the results are still subject to unrecognized confounding, including potential differences in the two populations that were treated with and without ICSI, or again, the concept of confounding by indication. 
While this study is reassuring, it certainly should be confirmed with well-designed, randomized, controlled trials. And my understanding is that such a trial has recently been completed, and the data will be shared shortly. In fact, it was presented at the recent ESHRI meeting. A thoughtful discussion of this paper by Dr. Stern and Nanjia highlights both the advantages of this very large cohort allowing power to investigate subgroups like unexplained infertility. They also point out that while the results are reassuring in terms of safety, the study adds more evidence that perhaps we are overusing ICSI in a large number of subjects to prevent a very rare outcome, failed fertilization. Now, this is a very hot topic right now, including a recent committee opinion published in last month's Fertility and Sterility, looking at ICSI and non-male factor infertility. In fact, we just had a journal club on this, and you can watch that at your leisure by going to the Fertility and Sterility dialogue page or the website. Now, we all want our best for our patients, and in medicine, there's often an unrecognized bias towards overtreatment. This paper continues to add to the mounting evidence that ICSI is not medically necessary and just provides greater intervention and greater cost to an in vitro fertilization cycle with no apparent benefit. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I think in our own practice, we're starting to back off on our indications for ICSI. And notably, even in PGT cycles, where ICSI used to be indicated that technology has gotten better, such that you don't have to do ICSI for all types of PGT cycles. I think it's going to take us a while to be comfortable that we don't have to use ICSI. So I'm glad more data is coming out to reassure us. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that next trial. This next paper is also an ART paper, focuses on early pregnancy. This paper is in the early pregnancy section. Trophectoderm biopsy reduces the serum HCG in early pregnancy. This article is by Liu and others from Sun Yat-sen University in China. And the aim of this paper was to assess whether trophectoderm biopsy affects beta-HCG levels in early pregnancy. The authors compared beta-HCG levels 12 days after embryo transfer from embryos that were biopsied versus frozen transfer cycles with untested embryos. There were over 300 patients in each group, and analysis was limited only to patients with a confirmed singleton IUP. ROC curve analysis was used to calculate the area under the curve and the threshold of beta-HCG for live birth prediction. They wanted to study whether a lower cutoff point for viability should be used in patients who use PGT. Prior studies that were done in vitro by Dokris showed that when a large trophectoderm biopsy was performed, greater than 10 cells, that this decreased HCG production, but a small biopsy did not show an effect. They controlled for confounders such as day five or six blastocysts and BMI, and they found that the average beta HCG levels of the biopsy group were about 100 milli IUs per ml lower, and therefore a lower predictive threshold for live births should be used. Now, this was interesting. Have you noticed this phenomenon? I think I've noticed that sometimes patients present with a very low HCG, and I spend a lot of time convincing them that everything is okay. Yeah, we check betas eight days after embryo transfer in our center. So our betas are typically quite low, but I have noticed that PGT patients at eight days post tend to have a beta somewhere between 35 and 70, whereas those that are unbiopsied do tend to have higher betas. Great. Thank you, Eve. So staying with early pregnancy, we know that the dominant immune cells in the decidua are natural killer cells, and these express killer immunoglobulin-like receptor, or CURE. 
Here, receptors can bind to the trophoblast on leukocyte antigen C, or HLAC, and both KIR and HLAC are highly polymorphic, meaning that there are numerous maternal and fetal genetic combinations that can occur. The KIR-AA haplotype has been associated with an increased risk of preeclampsia and other pregnancy disorders. So Diana Alessandru and colleagues from EVRMA Spain hypothesized this month that the KIR-AA haplotype would be associated with an increased risk of miscarriage when the embryo specifically expresses the C2-HLAC allele. This was a prospective cohort study of over 200 women with recurrent pregnancy loss or recurrent implantation failure. They tested for both KIR and for HLAC on both the eggs and the sperm, regardless of whether they were autologous or donor. The miscarriage rate was higher in women who had the KIR-AA haplotype between 38 to 48% with both autologous and donor eggs. In comparison, the KIR-AB and KIR-BB had only a 6 to 12% miscarriage rate. But this difference was only seen in double embryo transfers. In the subset of patients with single embryo transfer, the three KIR subsets had similar miscarriage rate. So they concluded that an increased embryo HLAC2 load has a negative impact on live birth in women with a KIR-AA haplotype. And they suggest that we should select donors who are HLAC1, not C2, whenever patients are KIR-AA. The commentary by Chaudron from Groningen University Medical Center in the Netherlands agreed with this and suggested that we start looking at HLAC1 donors in KIR-AA recipients. I think this is interesting data and supports some of the prior hypothesis. However, we should note that it's only a result of 14 miscarriages in one group compared to one in four in the other. And it only happened in double embryo transfers, not single embryo transfers. So from a biologic standpoint, why would it matter? It should affect both. So I wonder if this is a result of type one error or multiple comparisons. And I think bigger, larger studies should follow up on this before we make this a routine recommendation in our donors to test for this. Thank you, Micah. We're now going to move on to the subcategory endometriosis. And we have an interesting study from first author Louis Marcellin and senior author Charles Chaperon out of Paris. The article is entitled Focal Adenomyosis of the Outer Myometrium and Deep Infiltrating Endometriosis Severity. Adenomyosis and endometriosis can both cause debilitating pain and infertility. However, the diagnosis of adenomyosis can be difficult. It's often categorized into focal adenomyosis of the outer myometrium or cystic adenomyomas. Endometriosis is equally heterogeneous and often categorized using guidelines such as the revised American Society for Reproductive Medicine Scoring System. There's no question there's been a move and an attempt to diagnose both of these conditions with radiologic tests instead of surgery, such as ultrasound or, in this case, magnetic resonance imaging. The goal of this study was to determine whether the presence of focal adenomyosis in the outer myometrium, as picked up by MRI, is associated with severe deep infiltrating endometriosis found at the time of surgical treatment and exploration. The study evaluated 255 women with symptomatic deep infiltrating endometriosis and compared their findings with preoperative MRI. The presence of adenomyosis in the outer myometrium was found in approximately 56% of subjects with endometriosis. 
and those with this finding, it was noted that the deep infiltrating endometriosis was greater and the ASRM scoring system was higher. And these findings persisted after controlling for confounding factors. As described by the accompanying reflection by Dr. Hudelist from Austria, this study demonstrates a very interesting correlation between adenomyosis and endometriosis. While there seems to be a link between the diseases in this study, it's limited by the difficulty in confirming histologic diagnosis and the need for definitive surgical exploration. That's why, in my opinion, this study provides novel findings and should alert clinicians that preoperative findings on ultrasound or MRI may be red flags, but unfortunately, they still need a definitive diagnosis, and that definitive diagnosis is still surgical. Moving on to uh, epidemiology, we know that multiple gestation is the greatest risk from an obstetric standpoint following ART. Even ART singletons are at an increased risk of prematurity, low birth weight, and maternal pregnancy disorder. These outcomes are also common in subfertile women who get pregnant without ART. Further tease out the association of subfertility and ART on obstetric outcomes, the group first authored by Judy Stearns from Dartmouth formed the study entitled Contributions to Prematurity of Maternal Health Conditions, Subfertility, and ART. This was a retrospective study using a linkage data set, MOSART, from Massachusetts, and birth certificate data. The patients were divided into four groups, those who were fertile, subfertile, but who delivered without medical intervention, subfertile who got pregnant with medical treatment, and subfertile who got pregnant with assisted reproductive technologies. And the primary outcome was preterm delivery. So the findings were out of 160,000 live births for analysis, there was an increased risk of both very preterm and preterm births in all of the subfertile women, regardless of how they got pregnant. These adjusted odds ratios for these risks ranged from somewhere between 1.2 to 1.7 and were slightly higher in the ART group. They concluded that the greatest effectors of prematurity were placental problems and hypertensive disorders, and that ART and to a lesser extent just subfertility itself were both associated with these obstetric complications. In the commentary from Sasha and Morris, they note the challenges of these large data sets that use birth certificates and linkage data to get accurate clinical diagnosis, and they wish that placental pathology reports were better to more clearly identify these associations. But overall, for me, this study reinforces that adding IVF to the treatment in subfertile women is not associated with a significant increased risk, and that these exist regardless of how they get pregnant, and overall, these data are reassuring. Kurt, as an epidemiologist yourself, how do you see the trade-off between having a data set uh, like Mozart with 160,000 cycles, but losing the ability to really drill down on some of the clinical outcomes? So, Micah, that's a great question. That's, that's the beauty and the difficulty of endometriosis. Studies like Mozart, which are meticulously conducted with large data sets, really help us identify some associations. But identifying and teasing out what that association really means and how it can influence our practice is the next step. Yeah, speaking of large data sets and big studies, this next study is really interesting. It's dietary fat intake Erythrocyte Fatty Acids and Risk of Uterine Fibroids by Holly Harris with senior author Stacey Mismar. And this study is a prospective evaluation of dietary fat intake and the risk of uterine fibroids, as well as the association between erythrocyte membrane fatty acid levels and fibroid risk. 
It is thought that dietary factors may play a role in fibroid development due to potential to modify hormones and also due to inflammatory effects. Chronic inflammation has been previously associated with fibroid formation, and the link between that and diet is that trans fat intake influences circulating levels of IL-6 and other inflammatory markers. So this study used patients from the Nurses Health Study, a prospective longitudinal study of premenopausal women enrolled in ages 25 to 42. The study was a follow-up study over 18 years, though really impressive and a lot of data. They used food diary data to investigate whether intake of dietary fats was associated with ultrasound-confirmed or hysterectomy-confirmed fibroids. They also examined a subgroup of over 500 participants who had erythrocyte fatty acid levels. Dietary data was obtained during five years of the study using a questionnaire that listed greater than 130 food items and frequency of consumption. The reproducibility of this questionnaire has been previously reported. Cumulative average consumption was reported by patient. For the subgroup study of erythrocyte fatty acid analysis, Tertiles of fatty acids were determined and compared to distribution among controls. Confounders of oral contraceptive use, smoking, blood pressure medications were evaluated and found not to be significant. So what did the study show? Women who had a higher intake of fat were more likely to be a current smoker, have a higher BMI, and were less likely to have had a recent gynecologic exam. However, Total fat intake was not associated with the risk of fibroids. Dietary fat, dark meat, and fish intake were also not associated with the risk of fibroids. The subset of women with erythrocyte fatty acid levels that were measured were compared between those with and without fibroids. Women with lower levels of polyunsaturated fatty acids were found to have higher odds of fibroids, and women with higher total trans fatty acids were found to have greater odds of fibroids. So in essence, while total fat intake was not associated, when they broke it down, they found that increasing long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, so good fats, and decreasing trans fatty acids may be a modifiable risk factor for the development of fibroids. I really commend the authors on the level of detail that they were able to hone in on with this large data set. And I think like everything in reproduction, the environment gives us a lot from which we can learn and it's a great field to continue studying. This next article is a case report and it's in vitro maturation of oocytes for preserving fertility in autoimmune premature ovarian insufficiency. And the authors are Dr. Micah L. Grinberg and senior author Christoph Seifer from Paris. This is a case report of a woman who the authors diagnosed with autoimmune primary ovarian insufficiency and live birth of twins after in vitro maturation. The authors describe autoimmune primary ovarian insufficiency in the initial stages as characterized by the presence of antral follicles despite amenorrhea and high levels of FSH. The high FSH causes exogenous gonadotropin resistance and prevents successful COH. The authors hypothesize that IVM may be a good workaround. IVM allows for oocytes to be retrieved from small antral follicles without ovarian stimulation. So this was a case of a 36-year-old woman with acute autoimmune polyendocrinopathy. She presented with secondary amenorrhea for one year. 
She had spontaneously conceived a healthy baby previously at age 32. Her FSH, estradiol, and AMH were measured twice, four weeks apart. Her estradiol was less than 15, FSH was 21 and 36, and AMH was 0.76 and 0.65. Oocyte retrieval was performed 36 hours after 6,500 IU of sub-Q recombinant HCG administration. In vitro maturation was performed with a combination of the patient's own serum, FSH, HCG, and IVM media for 24 hours. Oocytes were then denuded, checked for maturation. M1 oocytes were put back in culture for another 24 hours, while M2s were inseminated by ICSI with her partner's sperm, and cleavage stage embryos were vitrified on day three. Two separate cycles of IVM were performed, with six and 10 GV oocytes retrieved. Eight cleavage stage embryos were frozen. A year later, after her polyendocrinopathy was under control, she presented for frozen embryo transfer and underwent a programmed cycle with transfer of two eight-cell embryos. She had an uneventful pregnancy and delivered twin male infants at term. I thought this article was fascinating. What I guess I struggle to understand, though, is how common it is that we can diagnose somebody with autoimmune polyendocrinopathy or autoimmune ovarian failure prior to the point of complete follicular depletion. I, I haven't seen that before. Kurt? I guess that's what makes it so interesting is I haven't seen it before either. Thank you, Eve. So now moving on to the genetic section of the journal, we have an article on PGT, which may be one of the least controversial articles we've seen on PGT in a while, and that's because this one looks at PGTM to allow patients to test for monogenic disorders in their embryos. It's unknown what percentage of patients that present for a consultation of PGTM actually choose to follow up and undergo treatment, and what are the factors that underlie this patient-driven decision. So this study to address this question from Iris Lee and colleagues at Penn was simply titled The Utilization of PGTM. This was a survey study sent out to 203 patients who presented for PGTM counseling from 2010 to 2018 at Penn, and 49 of the patients responded to the survey. 93% of those who came for a consultation followed up and utilized PGTM within three months of that initial consult. 72% of those patients had at least one live birth. The primary barriers that patients identified with were financial and the complexity of the PGT process. In conclusion, most patients will pursue PGTM after consultation despite the barriers. A very nice commentary from Carpacin and Foreman agrees with the importance of PGTM and that patients face barriers for access. They point out that it's $25,000 to use PGTM to prevent a case of CF, and that's a small number compared to a $300,000 annual cost of a new CF drug. They also make an interesting observation that this uh, volume of patients represented 2% of the patients that presented to Penn over that eight-year period. So it's unknown what percent of patients who would benefit from PGTM never overcame those initial barriers and even made it to a consultation. So while this is a small study, I think it's novel and helps us begin to drill down. It really highlights the need that we have as a field to increase advocacy to insurance companies and legislatures to provide affordable PGTM care. Such efforts would save money for health systems, uh, but more importantly, it would help patients be able to safely build their families. 
Okay, we're going to move to the gynecology section, and I'd like to present a straightforward article that I think will change practice. So Dr. Ashur and El Mahi present the effect of self-administered vaginal dinoprostone on pain perception during copper IUD device insertion in Paris women, again, a randomized controlled trial. So as described in the introduction to this article and in a well-written reflection by Dr. Zev Blumenfeld, it's recognized that LARCs, such as implants and IUDs, provide very effective contraception and minimize the difference between perfect use and actual use success rates or failure rates. However, one limitation of the intrauterine device is the perception of pain at the time of insertion. In this study, dinoprostone, which is a synthetic preparation of prostaglandin E2, is evaluated to reduce pain at insertion. The agent is commonly used for labor induction and controlling postpartum bleeding, as well as cervical softening for dilatation prior to gynecologic procedures. So specifically, in this randomized trial, in a blinded fashion, three milligrams was administered vaginally with the outcome to assess pain during and after IUD insertion. Because the study was conducted in Egypt and IUDs are not used very often in oliparous women, this study enrolled 144 Paris women. The results indicated while there was no difference in anticipated pain in those who received active treatment or placebo, there was a lower pain score during IUD insertion and 15 minutes thereafter. It was also noted that the IUD insertion was easier and there was higher patient and clinician satisfaction. This study provides very strong evidence for pre-treatment for IUD insertion. There are a few limitations of the study, including that it only studied a copper IUD and, again, only enrolled Paris women, but I feel extrapolating this data to other women and to other IUDs is certainly not a stretch. Thank you, Kurt. It's great to see simple data like that uh, from a simple study design that can be so powerful to, to change clinical practice for us. Uh, so moving on to the infertility section of the journal, we know that dyspeptin and neurokinin B are key modulators of hypothalamic GnRH release. However, there's emerging data that kispeptin and neurokinin B are found in the reproductive tract, so peripherally, and these receptors are expressed in the reproductive tract, including both mural and cumulus granulosa cells. Little is known about how this expression of these proteins and receptors in the follicles may be associated with infertility and various etiologies of infertility. So this is explored in an article this month entitled, Female Infertility is Associated with an Altered Expression of Neurokinin B in its Receptor and Kispeptin in its Receptor, Systems in Ovarian Granulosa and Cumulus Cells by Blasco and colleagues from EVRMA Seville. They got cumulus and mural granulosa cells obtained during egg retrieval from 300 women. And these women were a mixture of infertile women who were the study group and oocyte donors who were the control group. They found altered kispeptin and neurokinin B and their receptors in granulosa cells of infertile women. When they broke it down into the subcategories of infertile women, this was primarily driven by women with diminished ovarian reserve and advanced reproductive age. So the authors conclude that kispeptin and neurokinin B may play a role in decreased fertility in these groups by its peripheral action in the follicles. In the commentary of this article by Chansey Charlampas from NYU, discusses the specific limitation of this study, including that donors were the control and they were younger than the infertile women. 
So does this finding simply represent normal ovarian aging and has nothing to do with infertility? Or is this something that we have to learn about infertility further? But overall, I found this very interesting. I had not considered before this article Hispeptin and neurokinin B having a peripheral impact on fertility. The next article looks at adult offspring of lesbian parents. How do they relate to their sperm donors? This was an article authored by Audrey Coe from UCSF with senior author Henry Bass from the Netherlands with a reflection from Joanna Scheib and Emily McCormick from the Sperm Bank of California. The objective of this study was to study how adult offspring in planned lesbian parent families relate to their sperm donors, both known and unknown. The study had 76 participants, and they were 25-year-old donor offspring. The parents were enrolled in a prospective longitudinal study when the offspring were conceived. They looked at qualitative analysis of online studies. And I think the question is really, why was this study done? I think it was done because lesbian-identified women are increasingly using donor insemination to become pregnant, and there's very little information on the relationships that adult offspring have with their donors. In 1982, the Sperm Bank of California was the first family planning clinic in the U.S. to provide donor insemination to all women, regardless of sexual orientation or marital status. They were also the first sperm bank to offer the option of open identity. What this means is that after the offspring reaches 18, they can request the donor's contact information. The ongoing U.S. National Longitudinal Lesbian Family Study began in 1986 with the goal of addressing the long-term outcomes, including mental health of the offspring. The families have been interviewed or surveyed in waves, 1992, when the offspring were ages 2, 5, 10, 17, and 25. The study has a 92% retention rate to date, which is really impressive. These findings are important in helping to counsel women selecting between donor options. The questions that they asked, how did offspring feel about having a permanently unknown donor? How many offspring with open identity donors contacted them and at what age? What percentage of offspring with currently known donors had an ongoing relationship with that person? How did the offspring relate to their donor? And what views did the offspring have towards their currently known donors? What the study found was that 30 offspring had permanently unknown donors, 30 had currently known donors, and 16 had open identity donors that they had not yet met. In the patients who had unknown donors, seven of the 30 expressed that they were very uncomfortable. They did not know their donors. But overall, there was much more comfort than discomfort with 23 out of 30 with donors with unknown identity. 24 offspring had open identity donors, and 8 of 24 sought out their donors at a mean age of 20.4. With regard to those known donors, 20 of the 30 have an ongoing relationship with their donor. There were mixed responses on the nature of the relationship, whether the offspring is considered a donor or a father, an acquaintance, a relative, or an uncle and half the patients reported a good relationship and positive feelings towards their donor. Some participants wanted more donor contact, while some were conflicted about the relationship. The reasons cited for meeting open identity donors included finding out more about ethnicity and curiosity about the other half of one's genetics. Overall, adult donor insemination offspring of lesbian-identified parents 
fared as well as their peers in population-based comparisons and psychological adjustment. Family processes have more influence on mental health than means of conception. And I really like this article. I find that these types of studies help me to better counsel my patients who are using donor gametes. Thank you, Eve. This study is a paper by Dr. Zhang, first author, and Dr. Ling, last author, representing a collaboration between China and the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. The study assesses the reproductive biology of endometriosis. Endometriosis is a common disorder that is characterized by cellular invasions that is not dissimilar to that of cancer. This study looked at markers of cell migration and invasion, including epidermal growth factor, which has a function to interact with metalloproteases and extracellular matrix. Epidermal growth factor promotes stromal cell migration and invasion via upregulation of haluronate synthesase II and haluronon in endometriosis. Haluronon is a component of the extracellular matrix that plays a role in regulating cellular behaviors, including adhesions of endometriotic cells. This study compares expression of endometrial growth factors as well as haluronate synthesase II and its receptors in women with and without endometriosis using primary in vitro cell culture. Tissue was obtained from women with mild, moderate, and severe endometriosis as well as controls. Eutropic and ectopic endometriotic lesions were collected and studied. The primary findings included EGF and haluronate concentrations and noted they were higher in women with severe endometriosis. This study suggests that endometrial growth factor induced stromal cell migration and invasion in women with endometriosis may be linked in this pathway. In an accompanying reflections piece by Dr. Kanonix, it describes the implications of these findings, including the novelty but also the difficulty in describing whether these findings indicate that the mechanism is associated with initiation and or growth of endometriosis. In summary, all authors agree that this study is the beginning to address a potential new link between histological appearances and epigenetic and other changes in endometriosis-like tissue. Finally, I'd like to bring to our attention to our listeners that there are video articles included in FNS. This month's journal includes an article evaluating longitudinal vaginal septum, a proposed classification and surgical management. Eve and Micah, we've done it again. We finished another journal, Fertility and Serility. I feel better for it. I've learned a lot. How about you guys? I love it. I hope our audience really enjoys it. And while I don't think it's a substitute for reading the journal, I like to think of it as an inspiration on what to look for. Couldn't agree more. Thank you, Kurt and Eve, for uh, starting us on this journey with this podcast. This has been a lot of fun through the first two months. And we'll hopefully see everybody, so to speak, in another month with another issue of fertility and sterility. Until then, see you all later. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. 
The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.